You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Good afternoon, beautiful country. Hello, fellow Canadians from coast to coast. The coast, happy Tuesday. Two days away from the budget. We'll dig into that today. We got a great show. We got a lot to get into. Now, I'm not super upbeat today because we're going to start with, I am just livid at the Russian propaganda. And we're going to get to that in a second. But we're going to debate Disney. Like, when you turn on Disney, as some politicians in the U.S. are, when you think Disney's a, a, a child predator, like, when was the last time you're, you, you, know, you were watching shows like, oh boy, the Disney's on Disney, I better, better, better hide the kids, or I can't watch that. It's Disney. Like, what the hell? We'll talk about that. Why Florida's going to war with its biggest employer, basically. We are, I'm going to give you an opportunity, you, all of you. Like, you know, we're going to debate energy, right? Because of the war in Ukraine and, and Russia, people say, okay, we can't buy from Russia, right? You want to pay Vladimir Putin money? No. So Europe needs to wean itself off Russian energy. So, hey, Canada, we got energy. So it's always abstract. Like, how does it work? What about climate change? There's a real test case, and, I, and you're going to hear about it. And if you don't know about it, most Canadians don't. It's called the Bay du Nord, a deep offshore oil well that in three years could be up and running. Newfoundland and Labrador wants it. But I'm going to present it to you. This is like a real-life case. What would you do? Would you greenlight this? And supply the oil or because of the international climate change report, would you say absolutely not? We can't start pretending to fight climate change and then invest billions of dollars in more offshore oil. So you can debate that. Real life test case. This is the real thing. This isn't like, oh, Bill, this isn't the politicians who who run around, oh, build pipelines. No, you won't. Stephen Harper did not build a pipeline to Tidewater in 10 years. Stephen Harper. It's a little trickier than you think. People say, you know, you get conservative leadership race. I'll get rid of Bill C-69, the Liberals' anti-pipeline, and pipelines will be built. We'll go from west to east, and no, you won't. Didn't do it in 10 years in Harper. Justin Trudeau supported Keystone, killed by the U.S., Justin Trudeau bought a pipeline, TMX, for $7 billion. You know what you're paying for that now? $21.8 billion and counting. Pipelines are expensive and complicated and slow. I'm not anti-pipeline, pro-pipeline. I'm, I'm just saying the reality is building a pipeline is like a 10-year project, billions of dollars. Politicians that say, oh, I'm just going to remove this legislation and we're just going to have pipeline." No. They're selling you smoke. Emissions, political emissions. But this Bay de Nord is the real thing. This is actually like a true thing. This is a practical thing. This is a thing that would create revenues and jobs. And there's a real debate. So what I did was I called the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador to make the case for it. And then I, so he's going to make the case and you can decide. Uh, remember yesterday we said, oh, watch out. The liberals are going to table this piece of legislation on paying news organizations. Well, they tabled it today. I've got it in my hands. It's embargoed for another half an hour. 
there's a technical briefing this morning. We're going to break it down for you. Why? Because you should know this. Trust in media is important, right? Don't you think trusting the media is important? You got to know who's getting dollars from who. And I want to be as transparent as possible about that. So I'm going to tell you, we're going to break it down again today. Because you're listening to the radio now and you're like, okay, who's paying for that? Is the government trying to influence the message? Who do I trust? What's going on? Is there any transparency? I take that seriously. I'll mess with that stuff. I want transparency all the time, and, and, and so we're going to get it. And then I've, I, the back end of the show is about Darwin. Char- Listen to this. Uh, invaluable notebooks by the great Charles Darwin stolen over 22 years ago. And then a pink package shows up at the library from which they were stolen 20-odd years later in England with a Happy Easter, it says, signed X, and they return these invaluable notebooks that were stolen. What the hell happened? This is a whodunit. This is a mystery. And we're going to talk to the people who found it. Cool, right? But I begin, I begin the program today with the outrage and fury aimed at Russia. Aimed at Russia because of the attack on Ukraine. I mean, it's been years in the making, 2014, when they snatched Crimea. How we didn't see this coming. How we didn't see this coming when they leveled Grozny and Chechnya. How we didn't see this coming when they supported Bashir al-Assad and leveled Aleppo. We know what Putin is, and I'm going to tell you my view. But today, uh, Vladimir Zelensky the remarkable president of Ukraine, spoke to the U.N. Security Council, and he had just toured Bucha. Bucha is the village outside, the suburb outside of Kiev, the capital where the Russians retreated and left war crimes, according to the U.N. war crimes, according to Canada war crimes, according to every journalist who's seen it. And what they saw, bodies executed, people with their hands tied behind their backs, executed women, children. It's, it's disgraceful. And, and Zelensky, through a translator, spoke about the Russian atrocities that he saw firsthand when he toured Bucha. Listen. There is not a single crime that they would not commit there. The Russian military searched for and purposefully killed anyone who served our country. Now, the, the Russians deny it. Now, this is really important. The Russians deny it. The Russians say there were no war crimes by Russia in Bucha, that it's all fake. The Russian embassy in Canada, get this, the Canadian, the Russian embassy here in Canada put out a whole tweet series saying this is all fake. This is all propaganda that the Ukrainians have made it up. In fact, they posted a video of cars driving through the streets of Bucha, and they allege that bodies were moving, and this was all staged. It was all fake. And in fact, those videos have been easily debunked. The quote-unquote quote moving arm was part of their camera. It's all crap. It's lies. We shouldn't talk. There's not two sides of this. And then Dmitry Medvedev, the former president, remember when Putin had to leave for a while, so he made uh, Medvedev the 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 tr- you know the puppet president, and he wrote a letter 
today, translated, that I've read. And he says, day-to-day news of, quote, horror stories and overcomes is, are becoming more and more delusional. The key fake car stops at nothing. This is what they're saying. It's all uh, it's the whole thing they believe is to dehumanize Russia. I'm using his words that Russia's the victim here. It's fueled by an anti-Russian poison. And it's one quote, one big fake. Now, imagine that the Russians are saying it's a fake that that what you didn't invade Ukraine. You didn't destroy 90% of the buildings in Mariupol? Like, how did the satellite images of all the bodies in the streets before the Ukrainians came, satellite images of Bucha, which we've all seen, that showed the dead bodies when the Russians were still there? Then they retreated. Then they were found by journalists and the Ukrainian military. But according to Russia, that's all fake. It's all fraud. They are lying and slaughtering. And, and so what I'm going to do next, because you got to, we, what we got to do is we got to listen to eyewitnesses. So we reached out to a Ukrainian MP, Kira Rudik, and I want you to hear this conversation. Kira is the head of a Ukrainian political party, and she went, like all the leaders did, with Zelensky yesterday and the day before to tour Bucha firsthand. And I want you, this is hard listening, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is, but this is a mother, a politician who went, this is like going outside of, this is like going to Canada if you're in Ottawa or going to Mississauga if you're in Toronto. And here, what she saw there, she's going to describe to us next. Please stay and listen to this. It is so important. As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. If you haven't checked out uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky's speech online yet, he just spoke to the United Nations. He indicted the United Nations for failing to live up to its basic articles, which was to ensure peace. They're not doing that, he says. (coughs) But he also... (coughs) God. I'm choking. But I'm okay. He also says, my goodness, sorry about that. He also says that Russia has committed war crimes, war crimes in Bucha, the suburb outside of uh, Kiev. Now, there have been verified pictures, satellite images. Journalists have now seen it. The bodies are, it's a gruesome sight. Women, children, men, tortured, executed. But we wanted to get, I know the Russians deny it. I know the Russians say it's a hoax. But we wanted to talk to a Ukrainian MP, Kira Rudik, who went to Bucha and saw for herself the atrocities. And I asked her, you went to Bucha. Tell us what you saw. I've been there today and the day before. I have seen mass graves with 300 bodies, most of them with their hands tied behind their backs. Men, but also women and children. Some of them killed 
all together, some of them killed separately. People like, and dead bodies lying on the sides of the road. Uh, the bodies that they were tried to burn, especially women's, to cover for the rapes and all the other sexual assaults that happening there. So what we have seen was a total genocide. And I'm using this word intentionally because, because these people, they were not armed. They were not resistance. They were not trying to oppose the occupants. They were just living there at the outskirts of Kiev. You know, peaceful place where you plan to move when you're turning 35 and want to settle down. Now they are all gone. They're all gone. And we were also talking to people who, who survived it. We were talking to women who were raped in front of their children. We were talking to people whose children died because they, they got pneumonia and they were at the basement for 39 days straight without any ray of light. We were talking to people who, who were telling us horrendous, horrible things that happened. Like, you know what was the worst thing that I witnessed today? It was the destroyed building. Building where people, a home where people burned alive. But the fence was still standing. And there was a message in the paper file on the fence. It was written, we are peaceful people. They were indeed peaceful people, but it didn't help them out. Did not. They all died. And, and this is something that is, that is a red line. And if right now there is any world leader who would say there are two sides of this story, then he or she needs to reconsider. If there is somebody who would say, okay, we'll continue buying Russian gas and oil, then I can tell you they are paying for exactly these things to happen in my country, for my people, to my people. And if there are world leaders or world organizations who are still thinking that there is still time to decide to give us or not to give us the weapon, to support us or not to support us, I can tell you there is no time. Because right now, while we are talking, there is more of these crimes happening on the other side of Ukraine, on the, on the eastern part, in, in cities of, like Mariupol that has been occupied for, for 40 days and destroyed, same way as Bucha. Kira Rudik, um, first of all, I want to just pause for a minute, because in the last two days you've seen some atrocities. As you say, 300 bodies, mass graves, children being executed, as you say, rape victims, burned bodies. It's horrific. You know, Kira Rudik, that the Russians deny it. You know that the Russian Foreign Affairs Minister Lavrov today alleged that this is staged. You know Russian news outlets are saying that this is uh, done by the Ukrainians. I I'd like your response to the fact, you know there have been calls for an, quote, independent investigation. What is your response to the Russian view or the response to the, beef the need to investigate this independently? There is no Russian view. They are lying and keep lying. They are barbarians who came to destroy us. Orcs, we are calling them orcs, because there is nothing holy for them. You know, today, and 
yesterday, one of the goals that I had when I was going into this darkness was first to bring all the international journalists from the top media of the world so they would be able to see it and to show it to the people, even to those who don't want to look. And another point was for me to come and see it and witness it by myself. Because one day, I plan to be a witness at his trial. I plan to make sure that every single person responsible for these crimes is held accountable. And that at some point, I will be able to say what I have seen. Kira Rudik, you know, the President of the United States has called this a war crime, many others have. I, I want to ask you, because what happened in Bucha it may be happening all over Ukraine, as you know, uh, despite the, the denials or the lies by the Russians. I, I have to ask you, you're a politician. Uh, you've been in a war for, as you say, 39 days. But how, how did seeing what, what you saw in Bucha how did the, how has that impacted you? I know that I will never be the same, but my country and my people will never be the same as well. I am seeing what my people are seeing. I I am bearing arms same way as my people are bearing arms, because right now the most important thing that's happening for Ukraine as we are united as never. And. And the, all the traumas that we are getting, the rage that we are feeling, we, is helping us to stand, to stand forward and to fight them. Is, is, there, is there any way that, I know there's negotiations to, to try to bring some kind of peace. Is there, are there any parliamentarians who are ready to give up any territory, including Luhansk or, 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 or Donetsk? You know, my party uh, offered uh, a bill, we voted and signed it against the parties who work for Russia, against the ones who, who are able, to, who are willing to give up our territories. For the rest, I'm sure that right now Ukrainian parliament not ready to give up any Ukrainian territories. And after what we have seen, what we have witnessed mm. today, I'm sure there will be a stop in the peaceful negotiations or at least we will not be able to call them peaceful. Okay. Kira Rudik, Ukrainian MP who was just in Bucha. Can we just pause for a minute? Believe me when I tell you. Listening to that's hard. I know it's hard for you. I know it's hard at a lunch hour to say, why, why am I listening to that? It's, I can't do it. But the Ukrainians can't do it. They're like us. They just want to live a life, have lunch, worry about their kids, worry about their job, worry about their student loans. Like, they're like us. And yet, their towns and cities have been bombed. And, and that's what it is. These are atrocities. These are war crimes. Forget the denial. As she said it, there are no two sides. That's like Mississauga being destroyed. Canada being destroyed. Like, think about it. Okay, we're going to take a break. I just want to thank you for listening. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. If we don't pay attention, who the hell is going to? We don't stand up. Who the hell is going to? But what we're going to do is, if you thought the fight against Russia, why is there a fight against Disney? That's 
next. Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Have you ever watched a Disney movie and just thought, I hope I do not get morally corrupted by Walt Disney? Really? Have you ever thought to yourself, wow, man, the kids are watching, honey. Uh, The kids are, uh, what are we going to put on? Oh, they got the Disney. They're going to watch a Disney movie? We should check it out. Why? Why? Oh, because it's Disney, honey. I'm deeply worried that they're going to corrupt the kids. She's like, why? Like turning red? The Eternals? No. Well, but what are the what? What are all those great Disney movies? What? Like, what is the what? What is the the big fear about Walt Disney? Mickey Mouse? Goofy? Cinderella, Lady and the Tramp, 101 Dalmatians, my God. Well, apparently uh, there's like a war against Disney in the U.S. right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene, now you know who she is. She's the, the Republican representative from Georgia. Now, she is not representative of the whole Republican Party, thank God, but she is a, you know, sort of a radical populist on the right. She's very divisive. She said horrific things. But of course, she's part of this support of the the governor of Florida who's passed this bill that says that you're not allowed to talk about gender or anything in schools and young classes. It's been dubbed by critics as the don't say gay bill law, signed into law Monday. And of course, uh, Disney has said, you know what, uh, we're, we don't like this. And and the CEO of Disney first said nothing, but then the staff hated it. And now Disney's become Disney, like biggest employer in Florida, I think, or one of them. Probably the most unique example of American cultural influence in the world. The great representative of Hollywood, Disney. What says America like Disney? And yet Marjorie Taylor Greene has said Disney is a pro It's pro-child predator. That's right. It is a child predator, essentially. And listen to this. The immoral, disgusting, evil left is attacking our children. They are child predators. And I'm not kidding you. Look at what is happening in Disney right now. Disney wants to completely take your children, and they want to indoctrinate them into sexual, immoral filth. Yeah. That's what I think, Marge. That's what I get when I watch Bambi, the uh, sexual, immoral filth. That was been that was my big concern. How about you? So now look, she's a radical. She barely deserves our attention. And I understand that this, for some people, this bill, I don't want to, like it's an American thing, doesn't affect us. But it does affect people. And I don't mind that Disney's taking a stand. Companies should take stands. Companies benefit. You know, you get a corporate charter, you're benefiting from lower taxes. You're employing people. Like, we're supposed to support companies. And in return, companies are going to stand up for basic things like, I don't know, human rights. Like, I'm a father. 
this bill, I'll be open, disgust me. The idea that you can't talk about, you know, what happens if there's a kid in that class in Florida that has two moms or two dads or one of their parents is transgender? Or they can't talk about it? Teacher can't talk about it? This is this whole fundamental notion that you can, quote, indoctrinate people with their gender. What is indoctrinate? This is, this is a biological issue. This is not an indoctrination. This is like what used to happen during the homophobic era when being gay was illegal and, and people, and it was like, it was like, oh, oh, don't talk about it because you'll convince someone. Like, what, what are we, back in the 1800s, the 1930s? One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. What is going on in the U.S. that the real enemy out there? Like we, there are real enemies out there. The real enemy we know is right now is what's going on in Ukraine with Russia. Vladimir Putin is openly the main thing right now. Threats from China, non democracies where you cannot express yourself. These are big threats to democracies. Democracies are not about you and me agreeing. Who cares? Democracy is protecting our right to disagree. Totalitarian regimes enforce agreement. Democracies protect disagreement. Totalitarian regimes enforce agreement. Democracies respect disagreement. Now, someone says, oh, Evan, you're, you're, I, I'm going to call you at one 1010 and 71010. What about the woke left? What about everyone, the cancel cult? Yes, there are enforceable norms and and these things happen. And there's policies. You can't slander people. But they're based on a charter of human rights. These are not based on the whims of the so-called woke left or the radical right. We, We have laws. We have laws called the Basic Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And then we have a charter of rights that's dependent on it. And we have reasonable limits on your freedoms. I understand that. These are debated in terms of civil liberties and the government encroachment on it. These are good democratic debates to have. But fundamentally, rights of all people are respected. Isn't that what, if you're a conservative, don't you want the rights of the individual respected? Isn't that exactly the whole Burkean conservative movement, the right of the individual? And if you're a lefty, isn't that exactly what the charter is supposed to do, protect the rights of minorities, Joe and Milton, like, I don't understand why, how, you know, is there something wrong in a culture when elected politicians are declaring war on Disney? Like you're in the foxhole and you think Disney's the enemy when you've got Vladimir Putin out there. Like I, have they lost their compass? Joe, go ahead. Yeah. uh, Yeah. The thing I have with this, I don't see anything wrong with that law. I mean, they bring up this issue that you cannot take it. That's not true. Uh, the thing is, I don't, why can't you let children be children? Act like children. Why, why do you have to bring the sexual stuff, genders and all this? Why not teach them at that age right now how to read, do math, you know, the basic things that you're supposed to need in life, right? Sorry, but like, let me just ask you, but what, what, what do you... I'm, what are you protecting the kids from? Like, 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 what? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, what if a kid? What if it's Mother's no, 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 Day? No. Let me ask you. Let me just ask you. What if it's Mother's Day, and there's a kid in kindergarten that has two dads? What do you? Are we not allowed to? Uh, do we just ignore that? Like, honestly, what happens to that kid? 
shouldn't it shouldn't be the job of the teacher at that age. But what do they say? But so okay? so we should never talk about so teaching. so no Father's Day and no Mother's Day. So should you talk about fathers and mothers? I mean, nothing wrong with with with, with, with parents teaching their kids. And they want to teach them that age. That's fine. I don't think it should be a teacher's job at that age mm-hmm. to teach them that kind of stuff. Well, I'm and just I'm just asking you. Like I, I've raised two kids. Get older, right? I, I know. I'm, I'm just asking you. Okay, I, that's fine. But it's not part of the curriculum. But I'm just going to ask you. Let's say it's Father's Day, and the kid says, "Well, I have I have two moms." Teacher, which is the teacher says, "I can't talk about that." Well, and then someone says, "Well, well, well Billy's got two moms." What What do you say to that? Okay, if, if a kid asks the teacher, that's fine. You could tell that that kid separately, right? But you don't have to teach all the other kids about, you know, like uh, about two moms and or the genders or whatever. You know, like I said, at that age, man, the kids got to be kids. Let them enjoy but the life. kid is a kid. That but, 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 that, but why does that prevent you from enjoying life? Like, say, yeah, you have two moms, you have two dads. I don't, like, why does that, like, I'm just trying to figure this out. Why does that prevent you from, quote, enjoying life? That is their life, and they're enjoying it. Well, yeah, but at that age, again, they should just be taught how to do math, uh, learn how to read, you know, the, the, the basic stuff. You know, we're going so way off. This, like, lately, these teachers nowadays, compared to when I was being... Uh, taught in school is totally different. Yeah, I mean, well, I appreciate the call. I think the concern about the bill, I don't want to, it's not a Canadian law, but the, the bill is that teachers are concerned about what will be, if they say something in the classroom, they could be sued. Um, Evan, I hope Disney takes legal action against her personally. Her comments are defamatory. Evan, I love Disney, but if you don't know, they are racist historically. Listen, uh, we, we've talked about Disney stuff and their portrayals. Yeah, so, so that's part of it. Evan, you're so overreacting. It's not in the movies. It's the parks and it's the employees with the left agenda that they're putting. Left agenda? Ooh, is human rights left or right? Anyway, i got to take a break. I'm baffled. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Freedom, 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 freedom. They cry from the hills. Remember that? And the Conservative Party who stood very openly with freedom during the trucker convoy business. But I guess you got to wonder what the whole definition of freedom is when the governing body of the Conservative Party has just passed a rule that, you know, the National Council, that's the governing body, if you're part of it and you get a media request, you're not free to answer. you got to sort of pass it through the party president. So you're not, like, totally free, I mean, to do your own thing. You kind of, everything's got to be vetted. And, and by the way, be careful because... Remember what happened to this guy, Bert Chen? Remember him? He was a former National Councilor. He represented conservatives in Ottawa, in Ontario, rather. And remember, he was indefinitely suspended from his position on the governing body because he wanted to oust Aaron O'Toole. Remember that? He's the guy that had the petition to oust Aaron O'Toole. And then the then party or the current party president, Rob Batherson, was furious about it. And and then he said, well, you know, Bert Chen, you know, uh, he's got to go. He had violated the official rules. And, and Bert Chen walked into the wilderness. And then, of course, uh, Aaron O'Toole ended up being ousted. And Bert Chen, and then there was a, a senator, Denise Batters, who really was the other one who began the process to oust Aaron O'Toole. She was booted out of the caucus by O'Toole, but then she was since invited back in. 
So what do these new rules say? Like, is this a response to the fact that a guy like Burt Chen spoke out against the leader and now they want to try to muzzle other national councillors? Well, probably a good guy to talk to about this would be Burt Chen, who is the former national councillor representing conservatives in Ontario. He's not on it now because he was suspended indefinitely. And he joins us now. Mr. Chen, always good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Evan. So, so remind people why you were suspended indefinitely. What happened to you? Well, um, council voted uh, that uh, I uh, violated one of the uh, one of the uh, articles in the constitution that councillors could not disparage the uh, leader of the Conservative Party, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I felt that uh, my my uh, duty to represent the members in Ontario and clearly across the country, and including those of caucus, uh, to to uh, have a new leader uh, uh, was definitely founded. Now, speaking to Bert Chen, now, now um, when you did this and you got indefinitely suspended, just remind people the role of the National Council, just so people get it, like why this is a significant, because as I said, volunteer position, right? Yes, it's a volunteer position. Uh, we all have uh, normal lives and uh, we aren't remunerated in any way whatsoever. And uh, we're, we're there in, in, in my beliefs uh, to act as an independent review board of the Conservative Party, um, like the way a board of directors does for a company. And we would represent the members, you know, like board of directors represent the shareholders of a company. And when we feel that in a case like uh, the CEO, or in this case, the leader, uh, it has reneged on his business plan, and has a wholesale uh, uh, been misleading <clears throat> been misleading members, then we feel that uh, someone should hold them to account. So what about these new laws? So now people think, uh-oh, this is the, uh, the Chen law that the conservatives are now saying, we better tighten up on social media stuff, on dealing with the media and reporters who might be bugging you to say something. What do you make it? What are the new laws saying, the new rules? Well, I think, one, it's completely within the realm of uh, National Council's mandate to come up with rules for themselves. Um, frankly, the, the, what this rule spells out is really in regards to confidential information. The Council's trying to uh, enact some discipline. Um, I, I feel that uh, uh, there are those on Council that feel that uh, too much information is being uh, shared out with the media. Um, whether or not that's actually confidential that this uh, rule tries to touch on is up for debate, but it's, it's, it's symptomatic of National Council and the party under Aaron O'Toole's leadership to enact some sort of tight control and discipline um, because there was no other way to uh, influence uh, members. Okay, but is this, like, what does it tell you about conservative values? Like, I thought it was all about freedom and the right of the individual and let's get rid of the gatekeepers and yada, yada, yada. Well, I think uh, the Conservative Party still does believe in freedom in terms of uh, what these national councillors deliberated on and debated on these rules, which, from what I understand, was passed uh, uh, almost fully unanimously. Uh, It does just sound they want to get their own affairs in order. Um, Since I wasn't there and privy to their discussions, I can't say uh, what was going through their minds. Okay, what do you make of it, though? I, I make of it as their attempt to uh, contain some discipline within National Council. Um, 
obviously it came at a time uh, when I was no longer there. But I do feel that uh, it goes both ways, uh, whether it was uh, in terms of uh, what I, I launched in terms of the petition or the president unilaterally declaring and enforcing codes of the um, co- enforcing the Constitution and ruling the petition out of order, whether it was my petition mm. or Senator Batters' petition, um, th- this <clears throat> enforces some discipline onto the person, uh, president as well. Okay. Um, tell you, are you going to join up again or are you done? I, I know because I know you've now supported Leslie Lewis. So are you part of a campaign or are you what's your sense? Yep, I support Leslie Lewis because, uh, again, I'm conservative that believes in actually building consensus um, in being true to your word in honorable dealings. And uh, Leslie's a candidate that reflects my views the closest. Uh, I, I still remain a party member and uh, I encourage um, all party members to really examine um, who you're going to vote for closely. Because uh, in the past experience, uh, there have been candidates that will promise you the moon, but clearly aren't able to deliver. Okay. Do you, do you know, the big thing in this kind of vote, and speaking of Bert Chen, is in a, in, in a ranked ballot, you got to have a second. Do you have a second choice in case? I do. Uh, my second choice is Pierre Polyev. I think, uh, you know, while I don't fully agree with uh, his platform, and I, I think it'd be hard to agree with uh, any candidate exactly, um, uh, Pierre comes a uh, second closest to hitting all the right notes. Um, I think that Leslin uh, represents that collaborative approach. What I sh- I think we need first and foremost, right? Uh, and then and then the policies that uh, that can come and uh, challenge the Trudeau Liberals and NDP coalition. I mean, I ask you that because I'm, I, everyone's wondering: Will the Lewis supporters end up, as it was widely assumed? As Pierre Polyever supporters, and and I think that's probably the basic assumption out there. Yeah, um, I think I would go back to uh, who who is the competition out there. Um, you know, we we talked about uh, Aaron O'Toole on this call earlier. Uh, there are those around Aaron O'Toole, um, or were around his leadership that are on uh, uh, John Charest and yeah, Patrick Brown's sure. campaign for sure. And I think that's that's not lost on that's not lost on the voters who uh, clearly felt disappointed in in uh, the previous leaders' uh, leadership, and will make that decision uh, looking at not just the policies, but uh, uh, as part of a winning team, uh, who gets brought on board with that winning team. Bert Chen, good to have you on the program. Interesting uh, stuff. Your consequential stuff still from your decision. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate it. I mean, it happens, right? Like, look, this has already happened. I mean, maybe it's just what he said. Maybe it's just that party discipline. Maybe they need the discipline. Uh, Now, stay with me. You get to decide on an energy project next. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. So here's a little reality check for you. Russia attacks Ukraine. Europe's got to wean itself off Russian oil and gas. We all know that. That seems to be evident. Canada's got a lot of it. Can we help Europe? The answer apparently is yes, but how? It says, well, what, we got to build pipelines. Well, a pipeline from west to east, right? The energy has no proponent. 
didn't get built under 10 years of Harper and not under seven years of Trudeau, I would write it off. Not maybe one day it happens, but it's way off in the distance. So that's on one side. Trans Mountain's being built. Trudeau bought it for $7 billion. It's now $22 billion. Keystone was killed by the U.S., supported by conservatives and liberals. Northern Gateway killed by the liberals. So what do you do? Well, you can't. There's going to be an LNG, liquefied natural gas plant in B.C., most expensive infrastructure in Canada. Won't come on for years. But now you've got this other thing called Bay de Nord in Newfoundland and Labrador. So on one side, you think this is perfect. Canada's first deep water drilling site could be up and running in three years, uses a floating production vessel to produce 200,000 barrels of, of oil a day at a far lower emission rate than anywhere else in Canada. But the federal government last week delayed its decision to greenlight Bay de Nord indefinitely. And then you've got climate change saying, wait, didn't we just unveil a plan to reduce emissions? And the U.N. International Panel on Climate Change said the uh, key to reducing emissions is to basically stop oil, gas and gas extraction and maybe abandon it. Gutierrez, the secretary general, called it immoral. So Canada's committed to reducing oil and gas, but we're supposed to transition. So what would you do? So here's what I did. I phoned up. Uh, Andrew Fury, the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. And I, and, I, and I said, okay, you got these two twin poles. We need energy badly, but we need to fight emissions urgently as well. What's your response first to the federal government who have delayed this so we don't even know what the hell they're going to do? Yeah, so listen, the Beta Nor project is so important, not just for the people of Newfoundland or for the people of Canada, but indeed our NATO partners and environmentally the entire world. I think if we accept the proposition and premise, and I think we all do, that we're in a time of transition, I think there's an imperative that we turn our gaze towards the lowest carbon-emitting petroleum product that we can possibly use. And frankly, our Newfoundland and Labrador offshore is that product. Beta North, for example, will be 0.2 megatons of carbon per year per barrel when you're using comparators. It's around six kilograms of carbon per barrel. When you look at some other jurisdictions around Canada, for example, that can get up to 60 to 80 kilograms per barrel. So if we are in this time of transition, which I think we all reflect and know that we are, this is the product that the world needs right now from an environmental perspective. On top of all that, of course, is the geopolitical tensions that exist in the world right now. And this is an important product for that as well. So so what's the holdup? What is the federal government telling you? Yeah, no, look, you know, I've had good conversations with the prime minister, with multiple ministers, uh, including Minister LeBlanc, Minister Wilkinson, uh, and Minister Jubeau, and, of course, our own Minister of Reading. Uh, they, they are doing their due process. They, um, they're taking their time. Uh, but I am quite confident that they understand the economic, the environmental, and the ethical imperative of this project. Okay. The oil and gas industry, as you've just argued, uh, plays a part in this transition. Today, though, the United Nations Climate Panel released a critical new report. The UN Secretary General went so far as to say that investing in any new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. I'm using his words. And he sure. says investments will soon be stranded. Um, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I think, again, we're in this time of transition. We accept that we're moving towards 2050. Well, if we're transitioning, we need to make sure that we're transitioning to lower carbon emitting products. And so if, if we can develop, and we have it, 
the capacity to develop one of the lowest carbon emitting oil platforms in the entire world, then shouldn't we be using that product during this time of transition? I haven't seen any electrical planes just yet, so there is going to be a need for petroleum products in the medium term. We're, I, look, I'm not being naive. I'm not ostriching. I'm not, I recognize that these products aren't going to be valuable forever. But the environmental imperative right here, right now for our product is what the world needs now during this time of transition. You know, Newfoundland and Labrador is well positioned because we have an abundance of renewables as well. Newfoundland and Labrador can hold two thoughts in a set at right, once. But, but, but I understand that. But again, the climate report says the only way to stop global warming is to limit, as you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees uh, above where sure. we are now, dramatically reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and they say, the report says that this could effectively strand $4 trillion worth of coal, oil, but also natural gas infrastructure by the middle of the century. It just raises the question, is it worth it to invest billion dollars into something that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says might be worthless in 25 years? Well, I think the market should make that decision. I mean, you know, we're, we're, Newfoundland and Labrador isn't investing money in this uh, right now. This is a, this, the market should dictate that in, in 20 to 30 years. I think, you know, no, I wish we had a crystal ball to know exactly what's going to happen on, you know, January 1st, 2050, but we don't. What we do know is that there is a product right now that should be displacing higher carbon emitting pro uh, production during this time of transition. And I think that that should be the imperative that we all seek to, oh. to, to yeah, go so, ahead. So, so I, just, I just ask, because I know the market's going to say it, but environmentalists will say that's not what the planet's saying. The planet's saying no more fossil fuels. Again, I just want to make sure, because it's a really important project for jobs, for your province's economy, but also for, for as you say, with the new geopolitical reality. What do you say to environmentalists who say, sorry, we can't pretend that we're environmentalists and then start investing billions of dollars in fossil fuels right now? What's your response? But shouldn't we be investing in lower carbon emitting products right now during this time of transition? I mean, the, the, our offshore, the, this project, Beta Nor, has a definitive lifetime. It's being done with a partner that has full commitment to net zero by 2050. I mean, our own legislature passed a resolution committing to net zero by 2050. But part of getting to 2050 is using a transitionary product. And this, this product will allow us to hit those targets by displacing the higher carbon emitting product. Okay. Uh, and you don't know how long till we get the green light on this or not? I have no idea. You know, I, right. all I can tell you is that, uh, you know, we've made our case uh, from an environmental perspective, yeah. from an economic one, and from a geopolitical one. Newfoundland Labrador Premier Andrew Fury on a really critical project right now in limbo. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Adam. Okay, that's the case for Bay de Nord. Like, this is the real thing. You know, too often, so, oh, well, politics is about abstraction. Now, you may, that's the case. Now, some of you out there are all in on more pipelines, all in on more oil extraction, all in on the energy side. I get it. There's a transition going on. You don't want to support Venezuela. You don't want to support Saudi Arabia. You don't want to support Russia. I get it. On the other hand, by the way, nothing against the Russian people or the Venezuelan people or Saudi Arabian people, citizens. We're talking about the governments that are making money kleptocracies that are making money, totalitarian regimes that are making money. Let's be clear. Whenever we're talking about these countries, it's their governments we're talking about that are not helping their citizens, that are non-democratic, that have no accountability. 
that have oligarchs. Okay, I just want to be clear about that. We have no truck with the average Russian who's not getting good information and doesn't have the same freedom you and I have, or Saudi. This is their governments. I don't want to support their government. Do you? No. I'd rather support Canada. But then, of course, there's the global emissions issue and climate change. So I'm going to put it to you. Here's a real project with a real timeline, with a real case, a real oil project that's really on the books, that really has investors, that really could happen. Would you green light Bay du Nord? Yes or no? one 633 or 7-10-10. And really what we're t- discussing is like, how, do you, how does Canada make a difference? How do we help Europe wean off Russian oil? How do we do our bit for greenhouse gas emission reduction? How do we transition jobs? Is Bay du Nord, as the premier, now he's going to benefit most, his people will benefit mostly from the jobs, he says this is the perfect transition moment. Do you believe it? one 633 1010 or 71010. Your chance to play leader. Green light or red light. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Hey, welcome back. So I've asked you to make a decision. If you were in government, would you green light this project called the Bay de Nord? And this is an this would be Canada's first deep water drilling site. Be up and running in three years. It would probably last between 15 and 20 years max. Maybe 15 years. It would produce 200,000 barrels of oil a day. It would do that at an emissions rate close to 10 times less the amount of emissions per barrel that you get in the oil sands. So significantly lower emission rates. The federal government has delayed it indefinitely. There's a tension between we need a transition, but we also need to cut our emissions rates, and we've never met a target. We've got eight years to cut the oil and gas emissions by 42%. And would this do it? So I've asked you to weigh in because I want, this is a real project. This is not like, oh, I'll build, this is not like a a, a politician claiming they're going to build a a pipeline that they don't have approval, they don't have financing, they haven't negotiated. This is it. This is a real, this is the closest big energy project we have in the country. Full stop. This is real. It's not BS, fantasy land, political rhetoric. 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Now, here's the pitch from the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. He wants it. Here's what he says. And so if, if we can develop, and we have it, the capacity to develop one of the lowest carbon-emitting oil platforms in the entire world, then shouldn't we be using that product during this time of transition? That's the pitch. Evan, yes, 71010. No-brainer, green-lighted. Evan, yes, bravo for this Premier, Evan. We still need to heat our homes. Yes, to Bay de Nord. Evan, yes, keep up the good work. Don't be naive, Evan. All the environmentalists just want us to make their millions now. This I don't believe. It's always about now paying later. It's a grift. No, I don't buy that. I don't think environmentalism is a grift. Look, we got to change our behavior. The science is overwhelming. I completely 
believe that the science of climate change is overwhelming and it's costing us billions and billions. So we got, but it's a transition period. It's a transition. And if we can get oil out of the ground, like we can do here safely, cheaply, immediately for a specific amount of time, we can offset supporting horrible regimes like the Russian regime. We can support the Europeans as they make the transition. And it's a decade-long transition. Why would we not do it? It's a damn good pitch, isn't it? Don't you guys think so? Uh, what do we got here? Um, who's first? David, what's up? Hey, Evan, how are you? I'm great, man. What's your take on it, David? Uh, my take is on, like, government's slow at everything, so it's to be expected. And, yes, they should give the okay. Because, listen, at the end of the day, you, you may think 2050 is, is the target. They haven't met a target yet, so I don't expect this one to be made either. And listen, oil isn't going anywhere. Uh, did you not see the, uh, the major pileup of cars on the 95 this year? You know, how many, you know how many Teslas and other vehicles got stuck on there because their power didn't last? Yeah. And it became a problem to try to get them out of the way? What's going to happen when people are in high-rises and 50% of the people got electric cars? Where are they plugging them in? There's not enough grid to do it. Come on, Evan. You're, yeah, I, you're I appreciate dreaming in Technicolor Dreamland. It's I, I'm dreaming. I, I, sorry. Okay, I appreciate the call. I, well, I'm just, I mean, you can say I'm dreaming in Technicolor all, all you want. Um, you know, when General Motors said by 2030 their entire fleet is going to be electric, Joe, uh, or I don't know who that was, Uh I'm not dreaming in technical. It's happening. Tesla's more valuable than all the other car companies in the world put together. Like the shift is happening, pal. Like now there's, a, is there, are there infrastructure obstacles? Yes. There are big energy grid. Listen, I'm not suggesting it's easy, but the idea that like we're quote dreaming in technicolor or oil's not going anywhere. Like respectfully, you got to follow the money that the investments, you got to follow where investment and innovation is going. And you're just not, whatever you think or what you want to think, you're pretending that things aren't changing. They are. This is not me telling you. Look at investments. Look at where car companies are going. Look at investment in battery technology. Look at where governments are going. Look, like, just follow the money, man. Don't, don't, you don't have to trust me. Listen to the car companies. When the car companies are going electric, they're doing it because they know the future. Joe, uh, well, not Joe. That was David. Sorry, David. Uh, what do I got? Peter, go for it. Hi there, uh, Evan. So absolutely 100% you got to build this project. Uh, the reality is the only way to insulate ourselves, including our allies in Europe and the United States, I mean, the deals they've just made now because of the Russian regime with um, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, I mean, let's face it, evil empires, if you want to call them that. And here we are now, you know, having to go uh, cap in hand to get oil for the Europeans. They should buy Canadian oil from a great country filled with wonderful people. And the reality is that it isn't going to go away tomorrow. And we need to supply them today so that we can cut off a regime of an evil dictator who is, frankly, clearly the next Hitler and his poor people will have to live with the guilt of what he's doing in Ukraine today for the next 70 years. And if you want to know what that feels like, go ask 
some Germans who haven't been a uh, part of it for four decades and still to this day have to carry that burden. Yeah, I, pre- I appreciate the call. I- the geopo- like there's a lot of look and, and thank you for the call. I, I mean it. There, there's a, the, the geopolitical urgency. Check. Right. I mean, that, that that's what Peter's saying. Is that do, you, do we does this satisfy our geopolitical needs to, to help our European allies off Russian? Yeah, it helps. Doesn't do it all, but it helps. Damn right it does. Does it help us? Damn right it does. Is it transitional? Yeah, check. It's only going to be here for 10, 12, 13 years. Check. Is it at a lower emissions rate? Well, here's what here's what uh, Premier Fury says. Listen to this. Listen to how, how this is the carbon per barrel. Listen. Beta North, for example, will be 0.2 megatons of carbon per year per barrel when you're using comparators. It's around six kilograms of carbon per barrel. When you look at some other jurisdictions around Canada, for example, that can get up to 60 to 80 kilograms per barrel. So if we are in this time of transition, which I think we all reflect and know that we are, this is the product that the world needs right now from an environmental perspective. Not unconvincing. Lewis, what's up? So I think Canada just needs to look at what its friends and allies are doing in 2022. Joe Biden's the United States. They are all in on oil and gas development, uh, desperate trying to find new barrels to produce uh, within their own uh, 50 states, and they're and they're pushing a green economy. Norway, a great oil and gas economy, all in, and they still drive more electric cars than anybody else. I think Canada needs to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time, and 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 this shouldn't be the the, the role of a politician to decide anyway. I don't mind the bureaucrats uh, have a process to approve this. But politicians should should right. should not be involved in the decision making process whether this project goes ahead or not. Well, well, well politicians. Well, but, but by the way, politicians have to be involved. Of course, we. I mean, these, these have long term impacts on all sorts of other factors. But I will just say that if you if you're interested, um, that the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the EIA. Uh, U.S. levels this year and next will be record high crude oil production. So you're right on that. So I appreciate the call. Uh, yeah, look, look, the U.S. is the largest oil producer in the world right now. they got a surplus and they're producing more. Um, Evan, yeah, I'm against pipelines and LNG projects, but I am for this. That's kind of interesting. Look, I, the reason I wanted to bring up Bay de Nord, folks, is I don't think most people, it's not on your, most people's, now maybe it's on yours, but it's not on a lot of people's radar screen. And it's like a real project it's consequential. It's right in front of our eyes. And I'm a, just of the view that instead of a lot of political hot air, here's a real project that we can say, okay, are we serious about transition? Okay. Okay to the price on carbon. Okay. We're going to do our share, but we need a transition. Let's use Canadian oil as the transition. And this is the cleanest oil you can get. That's the pitch. When we come back, the pitch on the government intervening on the media. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Well, what is the influence of the government on the media? Has that been kind of in the news in the last number of years? Fake news? Who to trust? 
I take it seriously. It's my business. And a lot of people say, oh, the government influences you. No, we don't. CTV News, Bell Radio, we do not take money from the government from this media fund. It's there to support journalists. But as of today, maybe Bell will. And what does that mean? Because now radio and TV is eligible. Now, I told you about this, that the Minister of Canadian Heritage outlined this thing. It's called Bill 18, but this is this new bill for, for news. They had a technical briefing on it today, which you can, we'll talk about in a minute. And I'll tell you, this is what the, will make online communications like Facebook or Google compensate Canadian media outlets for reusing their news content. So, for example, um, you know, if you go on Facebook and you find a CTV article, are they going to pay CTV for it? Listen to what the minister said. So with this bill, we want to make sure that news outlets and journalists receive fair compensation for their work. We want to make sure that local independent news thrives in our country. Okay, well, how are you going to do that? He, he, he said, well, how, how do you do it? Well, here's one idea. Eligible news businesses will also be able to negotiate collectively, giving smaller news outlets in particular more bargaining power. More bargaining power. And he said, well, all, I'm doing this all to save the industry, to save the... Uh, when governments want to save the news industry, like, be wary. Here's what he says. Just think for a moment that between 2008 and 2015, and in today, 451 news outlets closed their doors in Canada. In the last two years, 64 of them closed their doors. Not wrong. Things are changing. But now the government's got this fund, and, and they get to decide who a qualified journalistic organization is. And those organizations get money. Well, who's qualified? Well, we don't know. How much do they get? We don't know. As Jesse Brown from Canada Land has pointed out rightly, there's no transparency here. Now, what happened today? Maybe that all changed. Let's bring back Michael Geist, the law professor at the University of Ottawa and the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. He's looked at this bill. This is the, for folks, I just want you to know, this just came out. So they've just tabled it. So, Michael Geist, what, what should people know about this? Is there anything new, anything surprising? What's your takeaway? Well, there's definitely a lot new. Um, and I, I'm not sure that it's surprising because the government's been telegraphing this for some time, but I don't think it makes it any less troubling in terms of where they've decided to move here. They've effectively decided that the government, through the CRTC, is going to oversee negotiations between news organizations across the country and the large platforms, particularly Facebook and Google. They don't say it by, by specifically by name, but it's pretty clear that's who they have in mind. And they want to decide what fair agreements are for access to news. And, you know, I, I think you even started in your intro talking about sort of the copying or the use of the news. The bill makes it pretty clear that it's much more than that. In fact, it's merely even just the access to news content that's facilitated by one of these sites. That is viewed by the government as something that ought to be compensated. So just a link? Just Compensate a link. for a link? Yes. Yes. And, and then, so, so the those... government's going to say, okay, uh, Google, you got to compensate these five companies, and these five companies can now act together 
And they're going to, through the CRTC, and in case anyone wants to know, the, the CRTC determines whether platforms are going to be uh, exempt from mandatory bargaining or not. So they're, they're, and so, but that's a government agency. So they're going to do the negotiation? Well, the government isn't going to do the negotiation, the CRT, and, and nor is the CRTC, at least at first. What the CRTC is going to do is first determine who this applies to, which are the large companies, so uh, Google and Facebook. It's then going to cast judgment on any deals that those companies strike, because those companies have the option to try to get out if they don't want to participate in this mandatory arbitration system where the arbitrator will decide what they are required to pay. They can strike independent deals with some or all of the various news organizations. The CRTC will then decide whether or not those deals are good enough. And so the government is providing a whole series of criteria that the CRTC is supposed to consider in deciding whether or not this is a good deal or not. You've effectively got the government deciding both that there is value, even just the links, and then setting the criteria about what's fair when you're thinking about what ought to be paid for that. Okay, so why why does that raise flags for you? Well, I mean, I think, one, it's... It intervenes in a marketplace that actually I think is working fairly well. There are already many of these kinds of deals. Now we're going to bring in the CRTC to cast judgment on many of these things. I don't think links are really a compensable thing at all. The the government is basically stepping in saying you have to pay for links. It's not clear why anybody should be paying for links. I mean, certainly if you are republishing the news, then sure, that's compensable and you ought to have a license for that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about news stories that are often posted with links by the news publishers themselves and are now saying, well, we should be paid for the fact that we posted a link on your service. So what about like a news aggregator site, like uh, National News Watch? I go to it every day, right? They, they post links. I don't, they don't pay for them. And they post links to the Globe. I click on it, I go to the Globe. Or I click on it, I go to, to CTV. I click on it, I go to the Hub. I click on it, I go to whatever they've posted. Well, that that act is viewed as a compensable act, but the uh, but the act itself, this bill, will only kick in if National News Watch met a certain series of criteria as being a large player. So, how big are they? What's whether they offer? They have a prominent place in the marketplace, or they've got some strategic advantage over the news businesses. So, they the, something like National News Watch might not qualified based on the fact that it's obviously a much smaller player, let's say, than a Google. I think it's worth noting, though, that the kinds of things that that the CRTC is supposed to consider about what's a fair deal are things that the large platforms have no control over at all. So, you know, they, they, they consider not just the amount of the compensation, but how much of it's being used by the news business themselves to support local news content or that they, it contributes to the sustainability of the news marketplace or, um, you know, there's a series of these factors. But those are factors determined by the news organizations, not by Google or Facebook yet. Effectively, the government is saying we're going to require Google and Facebook to ensure that those elements are in those deals. Otherwise, the CRTC mm. won't even approve it. Okay. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. I had asked uh, Pablo Rodriguez um, in 2019 on CTV's question period, which it, will all the decisions of this advisory group to see who actually qualifies, will it be transparent? Here's what he said. Absolutely. 100% of the recommendations, as you were asking, will be uh, will be public. It is because it's the, the whole intent of, of, of our action, make, uh, making sure that 
Uh, this is done on an arm's length basis, respecting the experts that sit on those panels. Is it, did this make it clear? Do we, will we know how they chose who's qualified, how much money they get? Is it all transparent now? Well, we, we know the criteria, or at least some of the criteria. The government's already saying that a bunch of the stuff will come by way of regulation down the road. So some of the, the, the devil in the details, so to speak, is being punted for a later date. So we don't know some of those things. But they are building at least part of the system on the very system that you had that earlier conversation with and that we now know through the work of Jesse Brown in Canada Land has not been transparent. And so they're relying on some of the same definitions that at least so far they've refused to make public who's qualified and who hasn't. And they're going to use that as part of the basis for who qualifies for this system. Okay, I got like 10 seconds. What, what happens next? Well, just first reading today, and so it's going to go through this process. We'll have to see how the large platforms, what the large platforms have to say about it, as well as the news organizations. But I think at the end of the day, this represents really a massive uh, intervention, so to speak, by the government into the news sector. And I think it raises the question as to whether or not there weren't opportunities to help assist that sector without doing so. As usual, Michael Geist, we really appreciate it. Okay, that's Michael Geist. Uh, Thank you, sir. We're going to take a short break on The Evan Solomon Show. You're getting all the facts you need to know. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. This is my favorite story of the day because I love these kind of whodunits, and this is actually a good news story. Charles Darwin, pioneer of the theory of evolution. Wonderful escapades if you've ever read his adventures in the Galapagos Islands on the Beagle. 22 years ago, he had these notebooks that he'd written, and they disappeared. These two tiny leather-bound notebooks. They're worth millions, including his famous Tree of Life sketch. And they were stolen and just disappeared. And then suddenly they appeared in a little kit, in a bright pink gift bag with a note, Librarian, Happy Easter, X. They had been mysteriously returned. What is going on? How delightful is this? Dr. Mark Purcell is the Deputy Director of Research Collections at Cambridge University, where they were both stolen and returned, and he joins us now. Dr. Purcell, what an Easter gift. We are really thrilled that these incredibly important manuscripts, and you've described them beautifully, are now back where they belong And we've also been really thrilled with the public response right the way across the world since we launched uh, the public appeal for their return 15 months ago. And we are absolutely delighted that these fantastic things are now back where they should be. I I love the good news story here. Okay, let's start at the beginning. What are these notebooks? How valuable are they? Where were they when they were stolen 22 years ago? 
we don't actually know a great deal about what was going on 22 years ago. It's a long time ago, and there's almost no one, certainly no one senior in the library, surviving from that far back. But from what we've been able to piece together, the manuscripts were taken off for routine photography at the very end, towards the end of the year 2000, and when a routine audit came up at the beginning of January 2001, they had not been returned to their place. Um, our predecessors in the leadership of the library assumed... I think wrongly, that the items had been mislaid. Just to give you a sense of the scale, the, the, the University Library in Cambridge has the best part of 200 kilometres of shelving in it, so it's not a small space. Oh, okay, they yeah. assume so that they've been misplaced. Some... Oh my yeah, God, do I more recently, and Much more recently, that these items had in fact been stolen, and that was the driver for the decision to launch a public appeal for help to get them back, which has now succeeded, and we are delighted that they've returned oh. to where they belong. Speaking to Dr. Mark Purcell, Deputy Director of Research Collections at Cambridge University. Let's just go back. There's 200 kilometers of shelves of wonderful yes. books there. This is, by the way, you work in like my dream place. This sounds unbelievable. But as you say, someone could misplace something and it could go missing for years. But you determine it's been stolen then. We, um, we believe that it's been stolen. We have no idea what has actually happened I can't speculate on, on, on what did happen. There's a, actually a live police inquiry around this, but actually we really don't know what happened. What we do know is that we're absolutely delighted that they've returned. So, so, so now tell me, is there any value on these things? Um, you can put a monetary value on anything and I'm, I'm not gonna do that because they're not for sale, but clearly these are extremely important items. I've heard them described during the course of the day as some of the most important manuscripts in the history of biology. So, you know, these are oh. really important pieces of global heritage. Let's, let's get into them. Life that they're back. Tell, tell us about the, these notebooks uh, so people can understand why they're so brilliant. Charles oh, Darwin okay. writes them. Let, 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 get into it. Okay, let me give you a go. Um, and I spent a lot of time looking at them when, when, when they were returned. There are two notebooks, each about the size of a small postcard. When you read them, it's quite stream of consciousness. These are jottings that Darwin made of his thoughts as he started to work through the implications of his thinking about species. So they're, 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 the set of notebooks are called the transmutation notebooks. They are the notebooks in which Darwin starts to pick away at the subject of how do species change? And that ultimately, of course, is what leads 20 years on to evolution and the great book on the origin of species. So they're quite small. Uh, they're very stream of consciousness. They're written in very dashing Darwin uh, Victorian script. Um, they are manuscripts of fundamental importance to Darwin's work and fundamental importance to the history of science. When they talk about the tree of life sketch, you know, it, it, it's like talking about a da Vinci. Why is that yeah, so important? Indeed, these are extraordinary things. And that's one of the reasons we are so extremely pleased that they've been recovered. And we are extremely pleased that they're back where they belong. Um, I'm also absolutely delighted that we, uh, in fact, we'd already planned a major Darwin exhibition, Darwin in Conversation, for next summer, never dreaming that these manuscripts would be able to go into it. And now they will do so. They'll be on public display here in the UK next summer. Under tight security. What was it like? Who was the librarian that found the bright pink gift bag with the blue box of notebooks in a plain brown envelope with the lettering librarian happy easter 
X. Tell me about that moment and who found the, it. The, items, the, the, the two items were found in this gift box, which were placed on the threshold of an office. So this isn't a kind of corridor, a stairwell, really. It's not a secure area. It's not a collections area. But just outside the staff office, they were picked up by the member of staff who came in that morning and taken in with all the other posts. And the member of staff, unwrapping them, very quickly started to realise that there was something strange going on here, stopped unwrapping and paused. And at that point, various senior staff came into the conversation. And of course, not very long after that, the police were called uh, in order to work out what do we do next? Um, it was clear that these objects looked from a distance as if they were the two missing Darwin manuscripts, which we knew a great deal about, but they were wrapped in a sort of bubble wrap. So it was impossible to actually see in detail whether they were what they were claiming to be and what they appeared to be. But a moment of, of high drama, um, some excitement, quite emotional, also some tension because, of course, with the items being wrapped up, we couldn't unwrap them and inspect, A, are they what they're supposed to be? And B, perhaps right. almost worse than that, are they intact or they have, been, have them been damaged or mutilated or spoiled in some way? And the answer, by the way, is no. Uh, they were. The answer, by the way, is no. Yes. We, uh, we spent a great deal of time authenticating them and I'm incredibly pleased to be able to say they are completely undamaged and we have no idea where they have been or who has had them, but it looks as if they've barely been touched or opened while they were away. This is such a good news story. Now, you know, this is the UK. There are CCTV cameras everywhere. Did, did anyone see anything? Is there anything? Has, have you gone? Who brought them? Who dropped them off? Who was this person? Who's X? The simple answer is this is an open police inquiry. We do not know what happened. We have lots of CCTV across the library estate, but we don't have CCTV in the area because it's just a corridor by an office area. It isn't a high secure area. Um, but all the CCTV footage that we've got has been shared with the Cambridge police and they will proceed and use that as they think is right. Well, the critical notebooks from Charles Darwin leads to the origin of the species, the most important. But now we've got the origin of a surprise, the, the return of these stolen Charles Darwin notebooks. Wonderful story, Dr. Mark. I can listen to your happiness, the Deputy Director of Research Collections in Cambridge University. This was a great, great moment. I'm so delighted that it's, we're not talking about a theft, but we're talking about the return. This is like a good episode of Lupin or something. Uh, thank you, Dr. Purcell. I appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. That was great to talk to you. It was a pleasure. My God, I love that story. How badly do you want to see those now? I am dying to see those. And whoever stole them, most importantly, they're returned and they're safe. History preserved. Uh, great show today. Great to have our conversations. Great debates. And I'll see you on Power Play, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel.